debating whether I'm going to say this or not. But I'm going to say it. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this church who has not experienced the blessings of God this week. You are clothed, you are fed, you are taken care of. Even Betty is up and walking again after everything she's been through. It's good to see her. There's not a person who is a member of this church who should not stop their life long enough to honor the God who has given them all that. I'm sort of amazed that every time the doors here are opened that the place is not packed. I hear from people via email all the time on a very regular basis who say, I wish, I wish that there was a church like yours somewhere in my area. I wish I could go somewhere and fellowship with like-minded believers. I wish that I could hear the gospel the way it's preached straight out of the Bible, the way GCA does. There are people who are longing to have the kind of fellowship and the kind of teaching that exists here at GCA. And yet, a little bit of rain or a really nice day. It's a really nice day. I can go golf on a Sunday. It's a little rainy day. I can stay in bed. It's just another day. I can listen to it on the internet later on. Jim's always on the internet. I can always catch up later. It doesn't matter. I was really debating whether I was going to say, you need to be here. But you need to be here. Because you know that when you're here, when you leave here, that you needed that shot of memory and that shot of encouragement and you needed to hear the word of God and you need to honor your God. I stand up here and say on a regular basis, get on your face in front of the God who has provided everything you have. I say that all the time and people agree with me. Yes, that's right. And then I wonder why they can't seem to lay their lives down for the God they say they love so much. I don't comprehend it. I don't understand it. Years ago, somebody said to me, Jim, you can't expect people to be as committed as you are. And my question then was, why? That's right. Exactly. Well, it's still my question. There are people who came distances. There are people who came on walkers. <laughs> but People make excuses. Life gets busy. Oh, the children. Oh, the thing. Oh, the job. Oh, it's my day off. Excuse, excuse, excuse. If God fed you today, if he clothed you today, if he gave you your right mind today, put your body where it's supposed to be. That is your reasonable service to sacrifice yourself for the worship and the glory of God. I hope that that reminder will be sufficient. Turn to Mark. Chapter 4. Last week, we started touching on the parable of the sower and the various different kinds of soils. And when I said, well, we're going to get into it just so we can see that Jesus, in principle, was hiding the truth from people who didn't have the capacity to hear it. When I said we were going into chapter 4, Jeff got a panicked look on his face like we were going to be here until about 3.30 if I actually approached that parable. So we held it over till this week, and it'll take a little time to kind of talk about because I want you to see the mindset, not only that Jesus is in, but he's telling a parable that is one of the many that Mark records because he's making the point that all of a sudden Jesus went from speaking plainly to people to speaking in parables and hiding truth from people. But I also want you to see that his parables were very consistent with the kind of society that he lived in. And so we'll talk a little bit about what it is to be a sower and what it is to be a field and how it is that certain seed falls on certain soil and then becomes productive or becomes bird food. It's all dependent on the soil. Now, some folks have said to me through the years, you know, if I had lived 
back in Jesus' day, if I could just see Jesus do some miracles, if I could just see that, then I'd believe. And I always say, no, you wouldn't. Because there are people who are listening to Jesus. They're seeing the miracles. They're experiencing it firsthand, and they don't believe. People have said to me, well, if I understood the Greek language, if I spoke Koine Greek, well, then I'd get a greater understanding of Jesus, and then perhaps I'd have greater faith and confidence in Jesus. No, you wouldn't. There were Greek speakers listening to him speak. That was their mother tongue, and they heard what he said, and they couldn't hear it. They couldn't listen to it. They couldn't comprehend it. Now, Jesus, through his ministry, is constantly fulfilling prophecies about what's going to happen when he's on the planet. And one of the things that Isaiah told us, we looked at it last week, is that God was purposefully going to have a people in Jerusalem who, despite having the very Son of God among them, doing miracles and saying things that are directly from the Father above, there were still going to be people who couldn't get it, who couldn't comprehend it, because God had stopped up their ears, because God had blinded their eyes, so that they wouldn't see, they wouldn't comprehend, they wouldn't understand, so that they would end up hating him enough that they would want to kill him. And that's actually occurring here because... God had prophesied it through Isaiah. And so Jesus says that the reason he's speaking in parables is because to some people it's been given to understand the mysteries of heaven. But to some people it's not given. So rather than Jesus saying, well, I need everybody. I love everybody. I'm going to give my life for, for everybody. I wish there were seekers. I'm all seeker-sensitive Jesus. Instead, he says, those people who don't understand and don't comprehend, I speak in parables so that they won't understand. Because then they might think that I'm going to forgive them. Then they might expect me to, to do things for them that, that I didn't come here to do. I didn't come to die for them. I didn't come to redeem them. I'm going to leave them in their blindness because that is exactly what God determined would be done all the way back at Isaiah and before the foundation of the world when Christ was chosen to be the sacrifice for the people that God would choose. Sovereign choosing, sovereign election runs all the way through the Bible. And you see, I hope you saw it last week, that God continues to elect in the person of Jesus Christ. So, knowing what Jesus said, or seeing Jesus' miracles, will not produce genuine faith in a person after their own flesh. Even though they may see it, even though they may hear it, they're not going to comprehend it because human beings don't have the ability to comprehend heavenly things. Therefore, God has to impart faith to you. And he does that by giving you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit will then convince you of your sinfulness, convince you of your depravity, convince you of your need for a Savior, bring repentance to your heart, and produce in you the faith in the finished work of Christ that actually is exchanged in heaven for righteousness. That's all God's work. That's all God's plan. That's all God's doing. And human beings can't do it after the flesh. So here's what I'm getting at. Mark has introduced us to several different kinds of people so far. He has introduced us to the Pharisees, for instance. The Pharisees saw the miracles of Jesus. They saw him do it. They can't deny that he's doing miracles. They can't deny that the blind are seeing and the lame are walking. And what is their conclusion when they see that? They don't conclude, well, he must be God. They don't conclude he's from heaven. They conclude he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. He's doing this by the power of Satan himself. Okay, that's one group of people. That's people who heard him in the temple speaking. They've heard his words. They've heard his teaching. They've seen the miracles. That group of people, nevertheless, cannot come to faith in Christ whatsoever and conclude 
that he is of the devil. Okay, that's one group of people. There's another group of people that Mark has introduced us to who are the family of Jesus, his mother and his brethren. Now, his mother, think about it. His mother was spoken to by the angel Gabriel. And she stored up all these things in her heart. And she knew for a fact that she was a virgin when she was pregnant with this baby. She knows something is different about this baby. She was in the temple with the baby when he's just a just a mere infant and yet she sees men lift him up and prophesy over him and say that he is the redeemer of Israel she's seen all of this she knows what God is doing and yet at this point as he's bringing all these followers to himself as he's causing this rift between himself and the religious people his mother and his brethren want to come talk to him because they think he's gone crazy They think he's lost his senses. Okay, that's another group of people. Now, there's this other group of people, the mob, the crowd. The crowd are really happy about Jesus. They're so excited about Jesus because he feeds them and because he heals their diseases. They can't wait to get to him. They're even willing to drop people down from the ceiling just to get to him. They're really excited about him. They're going to rise up quickly. They're going to be excited. And then when Jesus says, according to John, once he starts teaching them real sound doctrine and once some kind of persecution happens as a result, they're the first ones in line to start shouting, (laughs) crucify him. Crucify him. Now our loyalty is with Rome. A little while ago, our loyalty was with him. As long as he fed us, as long as he healed us, as long as he gave us stuff. But now we're not so happy about him crucify him. Okay, that's another group of people that Mark has introduced us to. Mark has also introduced us to the apostles and to the believers, to the real followers. So far, the only ones that he's talked about that really seem to understand things are the 12 who Jesus says, it's given to you to understand the things of heaven, the things of God. These are the people who are going to stay with him, who are going to stick with him, who are going to have the genuine faith. And so he's teaching them the truths of heaven. He's teaching them the gospel so that they will go out and preach it after he is gone. Okay, that's another group of people. Now Jesus tells a parable about kinds of soils. Is he really talking about kinds of soil? No, No, he's talking about kinds of people. And Mark has already introduced us to every group of people. And so now Jesus is going to explain why they are different like that. Because to his apostles, to the believers, it just seems incredible that there are people who don't get it. That there are people who will come to him for the food and for the miracles. And yet when he teaches them the real sound doctrine and teaches that he is the center of the religious universe, they all leave. They all depart till Jesus says to the twelve, are you going to go also? But Peter, because he really has faith and really is a believer, says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Okay, that's a distinction between his disciples, his apostles, his believers And those who only are involved with Jesus and excited about Jesus for what they can get out of it. So are you seeing the distinctions in people? Because Jesus is going to explain why these different people do and do not have faith. And he's going to explain it by saying that a sower goes out to sow seed. It's the same seed. It falls on all four kinds of soil. So the, the seed isn't the problem. The seed is perfectly good. The very fact that when the seed falls on the good soil, it produces 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, means that the seed is fine. The seed's good. The problem is the soil. Now, as he tells this parable about the sower and the different kinds of soil, it all resonates detail by detail with the folks he's talking to, but it doesn't resonate with us so much because I feel confident that there's nobody in this room who actually is um, sowing a field by hand at this moment. Am I right in that assumption? That's right. That none of your jobs is to go out and sow a field? Okay. Well, then let's talk about what that means. 
in a field that's going to be used for crops, going to be used for grains, it's laid out according to the different ownership. Between the different fields, there are footpaths that separate field from field. <coughs> and in the field, before it can be planted, it has to be plowed. The land has to be prepared in order for it to be good soil. That process of preparing the soil usually had to do with a lot of plowing. Usually you'd use an ox or a donkey or something in order to pull the plow, which was usually just a, a beam, sometimes just a beam of wood that's tipped back so that it can furrow into the ground and shake up the soil. Well, in the Middle East, there's a lot of rocks, there's a lot of stones, there's a lot of limestone, and so in order to get that out of the field as the plower was plowing, he would have to stop or he'd have servants who would every once in a while find the rocks and collect those rocks over on the edges, over on the sides of the field. So in the middle of the field, there's good prepared soil. It's been plowed up, it's ready to go. Over on the edges, you've got collections of rocks and you've got rocky soil. But then you've got this footpath down the middle and that was usually where the person who was sowing would walk after the field had been made up into mud and soil and everything else. He's the person who would actually go along and soil the seed. Soil the seed? He's the one who would actually go along and sow the seed. You know, at least that time I caught myself saying that. I get home sometimes and I listen to the message and I hear myself say things and I go, what was I saying? What? I mix words backwards. So he's uh, out sowing good seed into the good soil. But the way he would do it is he'd walk along the path and he had a pouch that he'd usually wear over his shoulder. He's got the pouch by his good hand. And the way that it worked is that he would reach into the pouch and then he would broadcast it across the field, across the newly plowed soil. Now, that's okay. I mean, grab handfuls of seed and throw it across the land. It's a good way to get seed out into the land. It's just not accurate. It's just not a great way to do it because as he's doing that, there's also seed that's falling on that footpath that he's on, which is real packed down. It's a footpath. So sometimes in order for the sower not to have to make sure that the seed actually got planted down into the ground, sometimes they would use animals and those animals, especially wide hoofed animals, would be walked through the field in order to push the seed down into the soil. But you've got animals then who are also walking along the edges and waiting for their turn and stuff. And so you'd have some of the soil that's packed down tight. So you've got rocky soil, and you've got packed down tight, and you've got a footpath, and then you've got good soil. You see how it's all laid out? Okay, now, in the Middle East, as Jesus is talking, that's common. That's all over the place. Everybody knows that's how you grow a field. You take some seed, some good seed, you throw the good seed out there, but some of that good seed falls on ground that isn't necessarily going to be good for growing, and then birds come along and eat that seed because, hey, birds like seed. Here's some fresh seed sitting on top of packed down soil, a perfect place to come and eat it. In order to keep the birds from eating the seed that's on the good soil, they try to get the animals out there quickly, and they would try to stomp down the seed and get the seed down into the soil. Okay. If they did that right, if they did that good, then they would have a good crop, and there would be some of that seed that had just been broadcast out there but is essentially wasted. Okay, Jesus knows all that. Now, hopefully, you know all that. That's the stuff you need to know to understand what he's about to say. Chapter 4, verse 1. That's all introduction. And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. So as I said last week, he created a natural amphitheater. 
He put himself away from the shore. All the people are gathered on the shore. That way everybody can hear him. Had he remained on the shore, they would have mobbed him. There's no way for him to speak to everybody all at once. But by putting himself in a boat, getting a little out from the shore, the people are all lined up on the shore. They're all able to hear what he's saying, what he's teaching. And he was teaching them many things in parables. By the way, let me mention real quickly, there is no English word, there's no actual historic English word, parable. That word is a transliteration of parabole, the, the Greek word. And since when the Bible was being translated into the English language, since there was no one-for-one one English equivalent for this word parabole, they just transliterated it. It's like, well, we don't have a word for that. Well, let's just say parable. Okay, there you are. It's good enough. So the word parable means a comparison or a contrast, taking something that's really familiar and then trying to use it to explain something that people cannot grasp, that they cannot understand. So you're making the unfamiliar familiar by putting it in the form of a, a parable. But sometimes a parable was used as a riddle. There are very various different forms of parables in the Bible. And sometimes parables were used, as Jesus is using it here, in order to hide meaning, in order to explain things in such a way that a certain group of people are going to understand it, but another group of people aren't going to understand it. So that's what a parable is, and he's teaching them many things in parables. And he was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. We now know who he is. We now know how he's outfitted. And we know where he's going to go into the field, along the footpath, throwing his seed into the soil. And it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. What's the road? The footpath between the fields. Some of it fell along the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it didn't have much soil. This is the collection of rocks that are taken out of the field, that are over on the edge of the field. Some of the soil, of course, is going to fall there, but because it doesn't have any real soil to work with, it immediately sprang up because it had no depth of soil. Now, all the agriculturalists in the crowd that he's speaking to understand this. They understand what he's saying. This is exactly how it works. Yeah, you're right, Jesus. Yeah, if you throw seed onto soil that's not very deep and it's real rocky, it's going to grow up quick, but then it's going to have no depth of root, and so it's, it's not going to be any good. Verse 6, and after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Okay, so there's two kinds of soil that the seed fell on that didn't produce good fruit. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up, and they choked it, and it yielded no crop. Anybody here got a garden? Anybody here ever grown anything? Yep. Really? One person. There's one person, two people have ever grown, three people have ever grown anything. Okay, four, you're late. Okay, if you grow something outdoors, if you have a garden outdoors, what is the most laborious tasks that you have to constantly do to keep your garden going? You got to weed it. You got to take care of it. Because ever since Adam fell, part of the punishment that God laid out was that you're going to have to till the ground, that you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow, and that thorns and thistles are going to come up out of the ground too. Okay, this is all part of what it is to grow a good crop, to grow a good field. There's also going to be weeds, and you've got to get out there and do something. You've got to pluck them up. You've got to kill them. You've got to keep them out of your good crop. So Jesus also includes that, that some of the seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns come up as the same time as the plant. So what happens if you don't weed your garden? Do you get a good crop? No. 
No, because what do the weeds do? They take over your garden and choke the good plants to death. Okay, that's the exact equation Jesus is talking about here. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Three out of four kinds of soil, no good. Three out of four, no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil. That's where you're trying to get it. And as they grew up and they increased, they yielded a crop that produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. Andy was saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Okay, that's an interesting place to say that. Because Jesus has just said something that is very understandable, very natural. As I said, to the agricultural crowd, they know that Jesus has just described what it is to see the field. That's all he's described. All he's described is you go out, you throw seed, some of it produces a crop and some of it falls other places and the birds get it and the weeds get it and it doesn't have any root. And yeah, that's the way it works. Exactly, Jesus, that's the way it works. Thanks so much for the lesson on farming like I didn't know that. And Jesus says, if you've got ears, you're going to hear what I'm really saying. If you've been given the ability to understand the mysteries of heaven, you're going to get what I'm really getting at. I'm not talking about soil. I'm not talking about seed. I'm not talking about farming and agriculture. I'm telling you a deep, heavenly, genuine secret. But I'm cloaking it in a parable. So some of those folks are going to hear, yeah, okay, good, farming, great tip. Okay, can you give us food? Thanks. But some people are going to say, He's talking about something else. He's making a point here. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. Why do you speak in parables? You used to speak more openly about things, and now You're talking all the time in parables, and Mark is going to list a few of them for us here. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, they get everything in parables. Did Jesus just separate humanity into categories that are saved and unsaved? Yes. That's exactly what he just did. Did he make any special allowance for the unsaved? No. In fact, what he did was make sure to hide the truth from them. But those who could hear, those who could understand, those were the people who were going to realize that he's not talking about putting seed in a field. He's talking about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And if you understand it, he says to his followers, and I think is still saying it to us, if you understand it, it's only because God gave that to you to understand. When Jesus asked his apostles, who do men say that I am? And they answered all kinds of things. Some say you're the prophet, you're Jeremiah, you're Elijah. He said, okay, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the son of God. He said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Even the fact that Peter recognized Jesus as the very son of God, even though he had seen miracles, even though he heard all the teaching, even though he saw the power of Christ up on the Mount of Transfiguration, even though he saw all that, he got no human credit for the fact that he came to realize that Jesus was God. Still, Jesus said to him, you are blessed because my father showed that to you. Because there are plenty of people on the planet who see the miracles and hear the words and see the power and just don't believe. There are people who can walk outside, look up at the sky, see the stars and think, yeah, that's probably chance. That probably just happened. There are people who can look at Todd and a kangaroo and still believe that Darwinism produced that. 
the differences, the distinctions, the majesty, the glory, the intricacies of chemistry on a cellular level versus the intricacies of the universe in perfect balance and everything in between. There are some folks who can look at all that and say, yeah, that was just luck. That was just uh, natural selection. That just happened. This was an old story that preachers love to tell that there was a fellow who walked into a watchmaker's shop and he found a watch that he really loved and he said, oh, this is a great watch. Who made it? Oh, uh, no one made it. And the fellow said, what do you take me for a fool? You can't say nobody made it. And he said, no, it just happened. It just appeared here. I don't know. It's just there it is. And he said, how can that be? Someone must have made it for it to exist like this with this kind of intricacy and this kind of beauty. Someone had to have made it. Right? Someone had to have made it. You look at the universe on which the watch is based. You look at the planets and the stars and the way that they perfectly align and the way that we create chronographs in order to follow the time consistency of the universe. Okay, somebody had to make that. If you don't believe that somebody made that, then you can believe that a watch could just appear out of nowhere. Okay, and yet there are people who can look at all that evidence and say, I don't get it. I don't see it. If you do get it, if you do see it, it is only because the God of ages, the one who is perfectly comfortable passing by other people, that God, the almighty, the all-powerful, the omnipotent one, that God took the time to tell you something about himself. That's kindness. That's grace. That's love. That's goodness. He could have passed right by you and you would have gone through the rest of your stupid little life never knowing anything and thinking you were awfully smart. And yet... God took the time to tell you something about himself. And so Christ himself says to you it has been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to other people, those that are outside, they get everything in parables. Why? In order that while seeing, they may see and not understand. And while hearing, they may hear and not perceive any of it, lest they return and be forgiven. Jesus is keeping them from returning to himself, to God, so that they will not be forgiven. Okay, that's absolute sovereignty. That's a God who is in absolute charge. And I don't want to just be accused of beating a dead horse here, but I'm going to say it again. God is perfectly comfortable. God is not increased. God is not made more lovable or more godlike by you or by bringing you to himself. He is doing that out of his grace and goodness because he is demonstrating the glory of his grace. And he is perfectly comfortable passing by some people. And if he has not passed by you, get on your face. Worship that God. Put your body where your mouth is. Take the time to recognize that that holy God who could have passed by you didn't pass by you. And don't ever become so familiar with that fact that you start thinking you can take it for granted. Don't ever treat it like it's just another portion, another episode of your already groovy life. God has given you everything you have. God has given you your mind and he has enlightened you to heavenly things so that you have the promise of glory to come. How do you take that lightly? How do you take that for granted? I'm tempted to say, check yourself. So I'm going to. While hearing, they're not going to understand it. They're not going to perceive it. While seeing, they will not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and then be forgiven. So he said to them, do you not understand this parable? 
And how will you understand all parables? In other words, he's saying, yes, it's given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But if you're having trouble with this one, how are you going to understand the rest of them? Because I'm going to be doing a lot of parable speaking. And when I speak in these parables, how are you going to understand any of them if you don't get the soil one? You got to start there. You have to begin with the soil thing. And now he's going to explain it to them to make sure that they don't miss it. This is almost like a key to understanding parables. Jesus is going to take the time to explain it to them. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Okay, so the seed that I said the sower broadcasts. The seed that he reaches in and just throws out there indiscriminately into the field. Okay, he tells us that's the word. The word of God goes out. The word is broadcast. The word is is gathered up and thrown out almost in a a nonspecific way. We preach to everybody. We preach to anybody. We preach the word of God and we leave it up to God to determine who the elect are and are not. We leave it up to God to decide what kind of soil we're throwing it into, but we don't stop throwing it. We just keep broadcasting the word, the way a sower throws out the seed. So he tells us the sower sows the word. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. In other words, as he's walking on the footpath there, there is some seed that falls right there beside the road. So these are the kind of people who I'm talking about when I'm talking about seed falling on the road. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. Okay, there's your Pharisees. There they are. They heard the word. They saw the miracles. They saw it firsthand. They heard the teaching of Jesus. They're standing there waiting to catch him in something. They're listening to what he says, probably listening intently. But as soon as the word of God gets to them, Satan immediately just plucks it right out. And it's gone. And that's why they don't comprehend. That's why they don't understand. That's why they're not following Christ. That's why they're putting up an argument against Christ. That's why they're seeking to kill him. Because as soon as they hear the word, the word is taken away from them. And in a similar way, These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Okay, there's masses of people following him. And they're happy. They can't wait. Oh, this is Jesus, and he's giving us food, and he's healing our diseases, and look at all the great things he's doing for us. Or even they try to make him king. He's finally our Messiah. He's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. We just couldn't be happier. They spring up real quickly, but because they have no root underneath them, verse 17, and they have no root in themselves, but they're only temporary. And then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they immediately fall away. It's exactly what happened. Rome closes them down. Rome starts causing all kinds of trouble for them. Persecution arises about this Christ. And then then Christ is captured and then he's put on trial. And then those same people who couldn't be happier immediately, instantaneously, they just couldn't be happier about the Christ. As soon as they see that he's being afflicted, as soon as they understand that they are going to be persecuted if they stick with him, they're going to try to save their own skin. They're going to forget about him. They're going to run immediately. They bear no fruit. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, fleshly desires, the I want, enters in and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful okay so there's another group of people the group of people who who believe initially Jesus talks about them we we read about those they believed but Jesus did not commit himself to them 
Okay, so they're the people who have some seed, but then the thorns, which he describes as the worries of this world. Now, that's the one that in my ministerial life, and it's a little early for application. We'll get to application in a minute, but that's the one that in my ministerial life I've seen happen time and time again. I can't tell you the number of people who have, through the years, said to me, this is it. I hear the gospel and I understand it. I'll never neglect to be... You can count on me. I am totally for you. This is great. GCA, man, this is my home church. I am all about this. They're gone. Completely gone. Where'd they go? Something in their life went wrong. Some pressure came along. Some desire for something else. Some desire for, I don't know, a bigger building, a different congregation. Some of them have left Christianity altogether. I doubt if he's listening today, but I'll tell you that one of the people who really was instrumental to our getting here as a public church today follows Tony Robbins. Make your own joke. He's not even Christian anymore because the cares, the worries of this world have choked away the word. John Riesinger said many, many years ago, and you've heard me use this phrase, I use this phrase frequently. He said, whenever anybody comes to me and says, Brother John, I'm for you. I believe what you're preaching, and I'm going to always be there for you. His reaction every time is to say, time and the devil will tell. And that's a fact. Once you profess Christianity, once you say that you are committed to the things of Christ, you can believe that the devil is going to throw everything he can at you. And things aren't going to go magically right, and you're not going to get a bigger car, and you're not going to get a bigger house. and things. But I can't even tell you how many people have said to me, man, since I've been a Christian, man, did life get hard. Life used to be, you're all laughing because you agree. Life used to be easy. I used to be able to just skate through things. And, and then I came to Christ, and life got really difficult. Yeah, well, that's the way that God is building your faith, and that's the way that the devil is trying to choke that word away. If you can get your mind off of the things of Christ and onto the things of your life and onto your worries and your concerns and your finances and your health and all that, all that stuff. I heard a professor say years ago, said, nobody ever had a nervous breakdown worrying about today. Because you've got today covered. Today, you're probably going to eat. Today, you've got some clothes to wear. Today, you're okay. Today, you can look around your family and say, okay, everything's all right. This is the state we're in. I'm not worried about today. But next week, next month, how am I going to pay my rent in a year? That stuff will make you crazy. But if you have faith, if you have confidence, if you have trust in the one who has tomorrow in his hand, if you keep yourself focused on the God who predicts tomorrow and calls things that aren't as if they are, if you keep your confidence in him, then you're not going to go crazy worrying about the things of right now, right here, the world such as it is, the world as it's going to be, what's going to happen, oh no, Trump! going to be okay because God's got tomorrow so so he says there are going to be those people who the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and they choke away the word and it becomes unfruitful and I hate watching it but I've got enough years in me now that I've seen it time and time again and those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. They hear the word, and they accept it. They believe it. They have confidence and faith in it. And they bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Let me just quickly point out 
for those people who keep insisting that works are not a part of Christianity. We have talked for so many years here where I've talked about the indicative and the imperative, and I keep insisting that works are part of Christianity. It's the works that God has ordained that we walk in. They are not the good works that we do in order to get saved. They're the good works that we do because we are saved. That's exactly how Jesus described it. Because you are saved, because you hear the word, because you accept it, you're now going to bear fruit. 30, 60, 100, and I'm really happy that he delineated it that way. Because you don't have any right to say, man, I'm a hundredfold, you lousy 30. <laughs> you will bear fruit, but different people are going to bear different levels of fruit. But it's all God's fruit. It's all the fruit that comes from faith in the word and hearing and understanding the word. And you don't have the right or the authority to go around fruit inspecting other people and deciding whether their 30 is up to your 60 because just about the time that you get done castigating somebody for their 30 because they're not living up to your 60 steve's going to come along with his 100 yep i just picked you arbitrarily i know luann winced because you're thinking 10 oh okay you are going to bear fruit If you believe, if you have faith, if you hear the word of God and comprehend it, you are going to bear fruit. Okay, now that's the explanation. Did Jesus just get done saying that all of humanity is divided among the saved and the unsaved? Is that true? Yes. Did Jesus just narrow down the saved group to a smaller percentage than half? Yeah. Yeah. We're surprised when we get out there in the world and we tell people the truth of the gospel. We're surprised sometimes that people just don't want to hear it. We're even more surprised that the majority doesn't seem to want to hear it. And yet that's exactly the way Jesus laid it out. There's just not that much good soil out there. Okay, so that's the parable of the sower who goes out to sow, and that's Jesus' explanation of it. Are there any questions about that before we go forward? No? Okay, good. And he was saying to them, so now that he's given them the basic template of how to understand a parable, he's now going to hit them with another parable. Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? And then he explains the parable to them so that they can get the spiritual reality of the parable. And then he turns around and hits them with a couple quick parables with no explanation. It's like he said, okay, now I've taught you how to understand. Now let's go for a test. A lamp is not brought in to be put under a peck measure, is it, or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on a lampstand, okay, we, we have electricity. We don't understand what that's about. We flip a switch, lights go on. But before there was electricity in the Middle East, when it got dark, if you wanted light in a room, you had to bring a torch in. You had to bring something that was lit with fire. You had to bring it into a room. And he asked the question, when you bring that light, which is a flame of fire, when you bring that into a room, do you put it under your bed? Well, no, that would burn your bed. Do you put it under a bushel basket? No, that would burn the bushel basket. What do you do with it? You put it up on a lampstand. You put it up high somewhere in the room, and it's going to light the whole room. Okay, so is he talking about lamps? Is he talking about fire? Is he, is he talking about lighting a room? Is that really what he's talking about? No. Because that's what he said. And it seems obvious. I mean, it seems almost humorous. If you walk in the room with a flaming torch, do you burn your bed up? (laughs) There had to be some people who kind of heard Jesus say that and went, I mean, it's just kind of obvious. But was he talking about lamps and lampstands? What was he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's talking about the word. He's talking about broadcasting the word. He's talking about the fact that they are the light of the world. He's talking about the fact that once he teaches them the gospel, 
they're not supposed to hide it. They're not supposed to take it and put it under their bed or put it under a bushel basket because it is the very words of enlightenment. These are the very words of God that are bringing light into the world. And if that word has been entrusted to you, don't hide it. I believe that's what he's getting at. Anybody got another interpretation you'd like to offer? Because he doesn't tell us what it means. We just have to interpret the parable based on what standards and rules he has already given us. Anybody got a different interpretation? Okay, good. Verse 22 says, For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it should come to light. Then he says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. So again, I know I'm talking in a parable. If you have ears to hear, then hear what I'm saying. There is nothing hidden except it's going to be revealed. How's that going to be the case? Well, God knows everything. God knows the secret desires of your heart. God knows the stuff you do in the dark. God knows the secrets you keep. And the truth of the matter is, if I can make this sort of a twofold thing, if you go out and preach the gospel, the enlightenment, the light of the world stuff, if you don't cover that up but you broadcast it freely, it's going to show the secret things of men as they are revealed for the sinners they actually are. As they are revealed for being the God-haters and the worldly Satan-lovers that they are. That's going to be revealed by the light of the Word. And so if you go out there and preach the Word like a lamp on a lampstand, if you get out there and promote the gospel, it's going to bring about a light against the darkness of men, and it's going to reveal the things that they think are hidden. But nothing's hidden except to be revealed. Ultimately, every person is going to have to give account to God. Every idle word, the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the intentions of your heart, it's all going to come out. Okay, I'm going to have to pick on somebody. We're going to pick on Leon just because he's sitting there. (laughs) I've used this example before, but I'm going to use it again. If we put up a big screen right here, Big white screen. And we have a video we can play of absolutely everything Leon has ever done. Is Leon going to feel good about that? No. No, but then worse, it's going to have in it every intention of Leon's heart and every sinful, depraved thing he ever thought. Let's watch. Wouldn't you be surprised if I actually yanked it out right now? Okay, so God's going to do that. And everything he didn't do that he should have. Everything he should have done that he didn't do. Yes, every missed opportunity. Now, Leon is uncomfortable with the idea that we all, the rest of us sinners, the rest of us depraved people, that we might see him, that he might be exposed. He's not comfortable with the idea that we would see everything he's ever done and that we would see every intention of his heart. He's not comfortable with that idea. Okay, God knows it. God sees it. God judges it. Are you comfortable with that? No. No, you don't want to stand before God barefaced, no redeemer, And just have to answer for all that. All the things you think were hidden are going to be revealed by the light of God. Nor has anything been kept secret that is not going to come to light. Notice again that when he talks about the gospel, he talks about light repeatedly. Everything is brought to light. But if any man has ears to hear that, let him hear And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. Take care what you listen to. Why? Because there's these Pharisees who are the religious leaders who are walking around talking about Jesus and saying he's of the devil. Should you listen to that? 
Should his followers hear that? Should they be listening to that? There are people who are following Jesus because of what they get out of it. There are people who are following Jesus because he gives them food and he heals their diseases. And they talk about Jesus in such a way that he's just a giant slot machine. Should you listen to that? Because that's a very popular theology out there right now. That's a theology that says, come to Jesus and he'll make you healthy and wealthy and wise and your kids will be gorgeous children who will run faster and jump higher. Just come to Jesus and your whole life is going to get better. That's a very standard name it, claim it theology that's out there in the world right now. Should you be listening to that? It was around in Jesus' time. There are people in the world right now, just like there were back in Jesus' day, who were saying, well, he's nothing, and those miracles, that's all fake, and he's, he's probably of the devil. He's just trying to confuse you. Come continue following me, and I will take you under the law, and I will make your performance the thing that God is going to base your salvation or lack of salvation. Should you be listening to that? No. But that was around in Jesus' day, and it's still around today. Be careful what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you and more be given to you besides. Okay, what is he talking about? There's a very parable type thing to say, Jesus. What are you talking about? Well, I think we have a hint when he gives the Lord's Prayer. When he includes the phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do you want to be judged by that, Todd? No, because are you really, really good at forgiving other people? Terrible. Terrible at it. Do you want to be judged on that basis? No. Okay, so here's Jesus talking to people. Remember his audience. They're still under the law. The new covenant hasn't come into fruition yet. And he is saying to these people, what you give is what you get. And if you give kindness, if you give grace, if you give the truth, if you broadcast the gospel, then that goodness, that grace, that long-suffering, that, that gospel covering, that's going to come back to you, and it's going to come back to you in plenty, even more than you give it out. But if you give out hatred, if you give out condemnation, if you give out judgment, it's coming back to you, because as you give it, So it's going to be given to you by your standard of measure. It shall be measured to you and more shall be given to you besides. Now, I've also heard preachers use that verse in giving messages and say, however much you give, that's how much will be given back to you plus more. And so folks empty their wallets in the hope that they're going to get back more. Now, I'm a great fan. Don't misunderstand me. I absolutely am convinced that the Bible says that you ought to support the gospel monetarily. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about because in context, he's talking about faith and belief and the gospel and enlightenment and understanding those things. It doesn't seem to be an actual giving message. But I am convinced that if you give to God, you can't outgive him. He sees whether or not you're giving and how you're giving and if you're generous and if you're sacrificial and he will provide for you accordingly. I've seen that for too many years to ignore it. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. So take care what you listen to by your standard of measure. It shall be measured to you and more shall be given to you besides. For whoever has... To him shall more be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. I think he's saying that in the context of the soils and the different kinds of ground and the very fact that there are some people who don't have any faith, who don't understand anything about God, and when they come across the preaching of the gospel or the truth about Christ, that even is taken away from them. Satan himself snatches it away from them. What little they have is taken away from them. But to those who have, to those who have the understanding, to those who have the ability to understand the things of God, to them, even more is going to be given. 
so that through your lifetime you're going to increase in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. How many of you would be willing to say that you understand the Bible better today than you did three years ago? That should be everybody. Okay, that's what he's saying. To those who have, more is going to be given. To those that don't have, who don't have understanding, who don't have faith, who don't have the comprehension of the things of God, who don't understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to those people, even what little they get, is going to be taken away from them. That's why they don't understand. Because God in his sovereignty is making sure that they don't understand. And it's very frustrating for us when we confront folks like that and we try to make it clear and we try to present the gospel to them and we tell them you are a sinner. It is like a cancer running through your veins. It is going to destroy you. And there's an answer. There's a solution. There's a teacher. There's a balm in Gilead. There is a Christ who will forgive you. And they say, uh, I don't get it. I don't understand it. If they were on an EKG, you could see brain death kick in. They just have no idea what's going on. Flatline, just no idea what you're talking about. And it's frustrating because I don't want to see people die. I don't want to see people be eternally condemned. Is there anything scarier than the concept of outer darkness? Is there anything scarier than lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and yet people end up going there? Where the worm never sleeps and the fire is never quenched. And that language of hell that Jesus uses, that language of judgment, I don't want to see anybody fall under the judgment of God. And yet, you can say to people as plainly and clearly as humanly possible who Jesus is and why his death is important and what he has done for their salvation. And they will not hear you. But they've never heard it. They've never had the ability. They've never comprehended it. They didn't in Jesus' day when he was walking on the planet talking, and they still don't today as we speak for him. They're not going to get it. So, if you understand the things of God, if you comprehend any of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, that is God's goodness to you, That is God's grace to you and his kindness to you that he has chosen you out of all humanity so that you will not fall under his judgment. He has saved you from himself. He has saved you from his wrath. He has saved you from his fiery indignation and brought you into his love and his kindness and his grace. And all I'm getting at today is, man, say thank you. Amen. This grace thing that we talk about is vitally important. This grace thing that we talk about isn't something you should take lightly or take for granted. And this God that has saved you is a God who deserves your worship, who deserves your time, who deserves your effort. And if he doesn't, then what else does? Questions. Well, good. Well, then, in that case, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye, Internet congregation. Now, see, they said it accurately. (laughs) Can the rest of you join saying goodbye to the Internet congregation? Goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.